Morning, Jamie, and, uh, and thanks for joining the Ask Andy podcast this morning. Yeah, Andy, um, yourself as well. Yeah, great to be on it. Uh, looking forward to having a good chat with yourself. Absolutely, it's always good when we have a catch up, and, and you know, we it's um, it, it's few and far between because we're both really busy people, but. Um, you know, I'm I'm intrigued into the sort of what drives you and what motivates you, and we're we're going to try and unpick some of those things, because I think there's lots of things that uh, people can learn from in terms of your experiences. Um, but before we get into that, um, you know, how are things for you at the moment? Are you what are you doing day to day um, now? Your your playing career is over. Yeah, so um, I'm, I've been looking forward to this too as well, and I love our catch ups when we, when we when we like to say we do get together. Um, yeah, so for myself, since since finishing playing, I would say my time split up is maybe sixty percent uh, leadership coaching. You know, created a program called Build, Building Champions. Uh, it's around building habits in leadership and also personal development as well. I'd say, you know, twenty percent of my time is maybe motivational talks around what it takes to create a winning culture and a champion team, and then maybe ten percent well-being. Um, around that program where we've worked together and then the last little bit is working for the Leeds Rhinos and also the BBC so mega busy in ter- terms of work and then outside work you know I'm just doing you know I've got three kids 12, 14 and 18 they, they bring their own challenges but they're good ones um, loving my time with them at the moment and then just really into uh, a lot I love travelling and also as you know a lot I love training <laughs> and yeah. entering running competitions or anything or high rocks or crossfit anything like that yeah you're, you're an incredibly busy man and, and if you've not heard Jamie speak um, then you know you need to get on to him and uh, and listen to, to one of his presentations he's got a range of presentations that um, that he, he speaks on um, and it's always compelling we've always had really good feedback uh, when you've when you presented to some of our client schools for SAS, so um, so yeah, if if you get the opportunity, um, try and try and get to hear Jamie. Um, I'm really interested to know what drives and motivates you each day, um, and and I guess um, whether those sorts of things, the things that drive you and motivate you, the sort of things that make you bounce out of bed in the morning, are the same sort of things that drove you when you were when you were playing. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And thinking about it, I, I still think they're pretty similar. So I, I, I'm a big believer, you know, what drives me is I, I want to do a really great job in whatever I'm doing. I want to be excellent at whatever I'm doing. And I, I want to give it my best to try and be excellent. I mean, I don't reach that every day. I mean, but that's my intentions when I get up and get out of bed in the morning. That's how I was as a player when I trained, uh, when I played. I wanted to be at 9 out of 10 and 10 out of 10. And that was my intentions, getting out of the bed. And some days you'll achieve that, some days you won't. But I think in life, if you've got that intent to be excellent, then it's just a great driver for you and you can get some satisfaction out of that. And then I just think as well for myself, I'm just passionate about the work that I do and just being positive in life. I think just making the most in life, I think as you get older, you realise that your time time on this planet is, is limited and you want to make the best, best out of it and just enjoy your time. So I think, for me, I, I'm motivated by enjoying myself still. You know, I enjoyed myself when I played and enjoy myself now. And I'm motivated by just being excellent, trying to be excellent in whatever I decide to do, Andy. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I see that in everything that you do. But I wonder whether where that's come from. Is, is that something that you've learned or is that something that was handed down to you by your parents yeah i mean it's good again i mean uh, thinking about like 
the question I'd say probably that it's a combination of, of both. My my dad was really hard working but very quiet. You know, my my mum uh, provided a great home for us, and I think I've always had high standards as a, as a kid. You know, I always wanted to uh, try be as good as I could be as a kid. But then I think really getting into professional sport. Uh, made me realise that it's just a really good motivator to, to do that. And I think early on in my career, you probably measure your success against other people. Uh, I think we often do that early in our lives. We measure our, our success on what other players are doing. Um, but as you get older, you, you realise you, you more fulfilment in life by measuring your success against yourself and understanding, you know, what, what does my excellence look like? And that's what I need to attain. So really clear way of looking at that is you know I, I'm never going to be as quick as a certain player so why would I compare my speed to his speed or I'm never going to be as technically good as this player so why would I compare my techniques I can strive to be as good as them but I'm not going to compare myself to them I'm going to know what my excellent looks like in those areas and, and go for that so I think in answering your question I had high standards as a, as a child I think you know I always wanted to do a good job in what I was doing I had pride in my work but then I think it took a turn being professional sport. Maybe early on, I compare myself to others when I should have been, as I developed it now, that I know what my excellence looks like, and and that's how I measure myself, and that's what drives me. And and that's a that's a real key point I think for for people to think about who are working in schools because, you know, I think if we compare ourselves to other people, we're never going to match up because we're not the same person, and 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 I think. You know, we what that then leads to is imposter syndrome, isn't it? In terms of am I good enough? And I, yeah. I remember listening to something that you said at one of your talks where you talked about the way that you went on training runs when you were, I think it was working with the rhinos, and um, and quite often if you're doing 400 meter circuits, you get to 300 meters, and and the rest of the lads would slow down because they're coming towards the finish. And you always push yourself to run through that 400 meters as fast as you could. So it's about making yourself the best that you can possibly be and the best version of yourself rather than trying to compare yourself to other people. Is, is that right? Yeah, definitely, Andy. I, I think it's a really succinct way of putting it. And I think you are right. I think as a teacher, you, you, you were, if you're a teacher working in a school, you, you have your own skills of delivery and how, how you teach. And it's good to look at other people and maybe look at how they use techniques, but you've just got to compare yourself to you. And I think... If you look in the mirror honestly and you've got a good understanding of what you're good at doing, you, you can look in and go, do you know what, I was a 9 out of 10 today, I was great. Or maybe some days you go, do you know what, it was 7 today, I did try my best but I just didn't quite get there. And I think it's a case of not beating yourself up too much when you're like that and just making sure you wake up, get out of bed the next morning and go, do you know what, it's going to be 9 out of 10 today, I'm, go I'm going to have a, a go at doing that. And, and uh, I think, you know, like going back to the sprinting, I think that's something you could control, isn't it? So... Yeah. Like sprinting the full 400 metres, that's uh, that's a choice, you know, that's effort-based, that's a choice, and there's not a talent in there, and I knew if I could make more efforts like that, it would lead me to being mentally tougher, but also physically fitter and, and a better player. Yeah, and I, and I think what you're talking about is sort of self-motivation, isn't it? It's, it's actually being the best version of yourself for yourself, rather than trying to do it for anybody else, so that you can live with yourself, that you've done the best that you can do. Yeah, that's it. And I do think that um, the sooner you can develop that in your life, the more content you'll be, the less imposter syndrome you have and the more inner confidence you, you'll have. And it can be a long, long process. But I think the first part in that step is understanding what you're good at and maybe 
writing down what you're good at, but then also getting feedback from people that you trust about what you're good at and then start working to those strengths daily. And I think that will allow you to start running your own race rather than being involved, staying in your own lane rather than trying to get in the lanes of others. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So just moving on a little bit, um, you're obviously working in, in well-being as well as um, an awful lot of, uh, of, of other work. Um, how, when did you get into well-being and, um, and how long has it been a passion of yours? So I'd say uh, in the back end of my career, back end of my career would have started 2010 to 2015. And I think there's a real shift in sport then that, uh, you, you know, we're always physically active, but that in around about taking good care of yourself in terms of sleep, nutrition, and also your, your mindset, how you talk to yourself, basically. And then uh, 2016, I got the opportunity working for the NHS to design a, a, a well-being programme for for uh, Year 7 students across Hull. Now, my thing was, in and around well-being, that I'm passionate about it, you know, and, and I embody it, you know, I make sure that I eat well, I sleep well, I've got a positive mindset, I'm physically active. But I wanted to break well-being down into some really small, essential, easy things to do and make it easy to understand and I think at that point in maybe in well-being it was probably a bit overcomplicated so uh, I think one of my skills in life is being able to make, cut through things and make them simple that people can understand and use and that's where really my well-being kind of uh, talks and processes got up and running designing a really simplistic program that uh, social economic Kids from social economically tough backgrounds in Hull would be able to follow and make a difference that was cost effective and also time effective for them. And then it's just expanded from there. Obviously, as you know, Andy, into the lockdown, and that was a huge time of, of people needing well being and needing something to latch onto because. You know, as you know, like we need well-being when we're stressed in our lives. Change creates stress. There's never been a bigger change for most people in their lives than COVID and a lockdown. So there's a real need for, some, I think, some simplistic, simplistic, achievable uh, well-being to get out there and some information out there. So I, it, was, it was readily available for me, and I just kind of know that stuff because I live and breathe it. Yeah, yeah, and it, it ties in with your sort of attitude towards life, really, in terms of you know being the best that you can be. And I think, you know, I, I think sometimes when uh, we look at well-being in schools, we tend to think it's sort of doing nice things for each other, which is which is really important in in this part of well-being. But actually, you know, I'm talking to schools now about working fresher as well as as working hard because you know anybody working in school has worked hard for as long as I can remember and I've been in it 30 odd years so you know it is about working fresher and taking care of yourself and and being the best version of yourself and and being satisfied that you've done the best that you can do um rather than trying to match up to other people's expectations which is I think where the imposter syndrome comes in yeah, certainly. When you're looking at other people's expectations, you'll always have, I think, a bit of imposter syndrome. And I believe you're right there. It's about, you know, you speak about working fresher. i give you a really good example of this where I think where life is beginning to change a bit and there's, you can tell well-being is coming through. That So say you have a stressful day, you know, at school. I think like 20 years ago, most people, stressful day, are going to reach for a couple of glasses of wine 
and just think, yeah, I need to escape it. But the problem is when you have a couple of glasses of wine, right, you, you might escape it for that hour, but then you don't sleep properly and you don't get the same high-quality sleep you would normally get. You wake up the next day a little bit more stressed, a little bit anxious and a little bit less positive. Then generally you probably have another worse day again and mm. then you slip back into the routine. Whereas if, right, you've had this bad day and I do this, say I have a bad day at work, right, I'll get home and I, I'm not... In the midweek, I'm not going for a glass of wine or a beer. I'm going out for a run. I'm going out for a 25, 30-minute run or longer or a walk because I know once I've got out there, done some physical exercise and sweated, I don't feel as bad about the day. I've probably come up with a problem to solve the day and I've got rid of a lot of cortisol and a far more chance of sleeping better the next day. So I think that's where the shift is, that when we have stressful times that... We need to self-care rather than almost self-harm by drinking. Nah, yeah. you know. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and it, it's all too easy, isn't it? When you get home, just to open a bottle of wine, and <clears throat> and that, in in some ways, is is a slippery slope. There's nothing wrong with a glass of wine from time. No, there's time. not. There's nothing wrong with it, and at all, you know, right time and place. You know, I'm an advocate for moderation. Look, I like a beer, I like a glass of wine, but. I, I like to have a glass of beer and a, a glass of wine when when, I, when I'm with some friends or uh, I'm having a you know I'm out for a meal or I'm enjoying myself and I'm having a good time. Not off the back of feeling stressful. I'll go for a run and do some exercise because I know it makes me feel better. Yeah, absolutely, and and I can I, I can vouch for that. Um, you know I'm. I'm... I'm going to the gym tonight. It's Thursday, towards the end of the week. I've been on the road all week. I'm tired, but I know when I come out of the gym, I'll feel better. Um, yeah, 100%. I mean, Andy, you never go to the gym or never go for a run or a walk and come back and go, do you know, mentally, I, I feel worse from that. That just doesn't happen. You no. just feel better from doing it. Yeah, yeah, it's those endorphins, isn't it, that we that we release when we, when we exercise. Yeah. But the, the the last question I really wanted to, to put to you before we move on to sort of talking a little bit more about education specifically, um, we, we have seen some high-profile cases of elite athletes suffering some real mental ill health and, and you know, sadly even some taking their own lives over the, over the last 10 years or so. Do you think professional sport does enough to support the well-being of professional athletes? And, and if not, do you think more could be done? I think, um, let's go back 15 years. 15 years, I, I say no. I say, you know, rugby league uh, as a sport would not have done enough to support these kind of issues. But I know, I can only speak from the sport I'm involved in, rugby league, that, yeah, they do. There's lots of support and network there for players because you understand, you know, the problem with professional sport is there's such highs and such lows. There's never really a middle ground with what, what you're doing. And I, I'm speaking from experience, that's something maybe I missed a little bit when I finished playing was that, you know, riding the roller coaster of highs and lows, whereas general life is a little bit more uh, the ripples rather than tsunamis in, in moods and emotions. And you need support around you, you need a support network, and Rugby League has got really good at supporting the players in and in, in, in around that. And I think most sports now have that support and care because they understand that it's a difficult profession, you're in the public eye. Everybody thinks they can. They know how to do your job better than yourself, yeah. and um, you need that support around it. So I'd say at the moment, I think there's oh, you can always do more, Andy. But I think we've got a good level of support, certainly in rugby league around players. Yeah, and and I think you know, I I, I kind of guess I know what your answer to this is going to be, but 
you know, I, I watch um, a professional football team, I won't say which one, but, um, you know, and this is the same with any any sports team to a certain extent. People think they can go through the gate, pay the money uh, and shout whatever they like. But there is going to be some kind of mental ill health consequences if that happens. You know, these, no matter what they're paid, these professionals are, are people who will struggle with their mental health and... You know, if we really want, as supporters, want the best from from our athletes, you know, I, I, I'm guessing we'd we'd want to have them in the best mental space that we possibly could, and and actually shouting abuse at them isn't helping, is it? No, it's, it doesn't help them. That's for sure. It's, yeah, I think you're better to be a supporter rather than a fan. So supporter supports the teams in good times and bad times. A fan is fanatical, and that's when you you get the the uh, the negative uh, talk in and around players. And I think. You know, for youth football example, I think people think it's all right because there's uh, 22 millionaires running around on the field. But because they've got money, it's all right to say what you want about them. I don't think that's the right kind of values to have in life in doing that. And I think if you think about your best performance ever at work and your worst performance ever, I reckon there's never too much difference physically. It's mentally where you're at and the same in professional sport. Yeah, and, and I guess, you know, speaking as a, as a professional... Um, you know, does does that abuse get to you? Does it hurt? Does it affect your performance and your mental health? I think um, I would say yes. You know, I'd say it does affect players. Certainly, how easy it is to uh, reach a player through social media. You know, going back a, a long time, it's a little bit hard to reach a player. But and social media is so instantaneous. And I think there has been work done by Twitter, but and other. Um, social media companies to make sure that players don't receive abuses. People have got no right to do it. I always think in life, you know, if you won't say something to somebody's face, then you should never put it in social media. And I think a lot of stuff gets said on social media about players that you won't say to somebody's face. So I think you have to develop thick skin or, or not use social media as, as a as a uh, sports player, which is an unfortunate place to be, really. Yeah, I suppose it's a small price to pay for your, for your, for your sanity and your own mental health. Yeah, of course. But turning to education now specifically, <coughs> we're seeing those people working in schools habitually now working well in excess of the paid hours. I mean, I think it's 32 and a half hours a week that you're expected to work if you're a teacher in school. Um, and we're, we're seeing some of some of the, our colleagues working double those contracted hours, often at the expense of their own uh, well-being and, and family life. And, and I'm going back to last weekend. <coughs> I went for a walk. Uh, in the foothills of Pendle, um, beautiful countryside, gorgeous day, uh, and I was on this walk with my wife, who's a teacher, and uh, and two friends who are, are teachers, um, and they said to me, "Oh, we're making the most of it because tomorrow, Sunday, we're going to end up working all day because we've got planning, we've got marking, we've got assessment to do," and and you know at that point I just thought this system is broken, we can't keep making it work, but. What can, what can those people working in schools do to break some of these habits of, of, of that overwork and spending all of that time, that, that well-being time that they should be spending? How do, we, how do we address that and rebuild the sort of well-being that you know, they're entitled to? I think, yeah, it's a challenging question, that's for sure. And I, I always believe with stuff like that that there is some work that people will be doing that they don't need to do. And I think it's about being smart with the work that you need to do and really asking yourself honestly the question, do I need to do this? What level do, do I need to do it at? 
and they're the questions I think you can ask to uh, uh, lessen a workload because I, 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 in, you know, my leadership coaching, I've never met anybody when I ask them this question that absolutely everything they've got to do, there's always something that they're doing that they don't need to be doing or they can do it at like 8 out of 10 instead of 10 out of 10 and I think it's about that, finding out what in your workload you don't actually have to do and then in some of it, I think it's about the making sure, I reckon in our life, in our work, some needs to be 10 out of 10, some will be 8 out of 10 and that will do, and I think it's about working that out as well, Andy. Yeah, and I, I think it's about asking questions of ourselves as well, isn't it? That You know, I, I was talking to somebody uh, in the profession just, just this week, and they were saying they came across a teacher, um, a young lad who gets up at half past four in the morning to get all of his preparation done because the evening spent marking. And you just think at that point, are we really asking questions of ourselves about whether this is something we can sustain? Because, you know, in 30 odd years of being in the profession, it, it never went away for me. Yeah. It was, you know, it was it was constant. But I think you're absolutely right. It's, in some ways, it's about I hesitate to use the word prioritization because people do prioritize. But, you know, there's I think there's some stuff that you know potentially is less important than the critical stuff that makes a difference to the kids so i think your point about sort of prioritizing that and, and focusing on what makes a difference you know is really really key yeah it's key prioritization is key and the problem i think sometimes when people are working really long hours like the example you're there it's just over preparation when it's not needed and i think that ties in imposter syndrome that generally leads to over preparation leads to overworking and I think imposter syndrome comes from a lack of inner confidence and not understanding your strength. So I think that uh, problem of time management in that kind of case essentially boils down to that they need to understand the strengths, work to them more, then they don't over-prepare and then they get more time back. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think we just need to ask questions about whether <clears throat> this is a, you know, a, a career that we want that is going to rule out any sort of social life. Um, and just say we're not prepared to do that and, and you know say stop because the other the side of this that you know concerns me to a certain extent is that you know we're, we're kind of making the system work and, it, and it's probably time to say actually whilst we're, we're, we're making the system work we're probably doing two people's jobs here um, yeah. and masking the need for extra resource so <clears throat> yeah I think that's a that's a really good idea and I have a tool called ditch delay and drive and basically it's a prioritization exercise you know what what can we ditch what do we not have to do immediately what can we delay um, and what are the things we want to drive and really put our effort into those yeah it's a great idea i think if you've got a good system like that then it allows you to go through and definitely prioritize Andy. yeah absolutely Okay, I'm just going to ask a question about your, your Be a Champion programme. And I know, you know you've know you worked with a number of schools who, who may well know what we're talking about. But I guess this is a really good opportunity for you to just explain a little bit more about what Be a Champion is um, and, and just see if schools would be interested in, uh, in, in sort of coming on board to use the programme. Yeah, I mean, it's really kind of you to let me do that. I, I think Be a Champion is a 30-day wellbeing programme that I designed during lockdown and it's aimed essentially from eight-year-olds to up to 80-year-olds. And it just looks at four different pillars of, of well-being, you know, positive mindset, which is about positive influences, developing confidence and resilience. Then it's around sleeping well, eating well, being physically active. And in the 
program there's a, a book that comes with it that's a journaling book and in that book there's information about how you can surround yourself with positive influences you know how you can develop confidence how you develop resilience and then there's information about uh, the, the benefits of sleeping well eating well being physically active and also some tips but then I've boiled all that down into almost like a daily task list of some simple tasks that you need to complete each day um, and complete these over 30 days. And the idea is that over 30 days you create habits in these areas. So, for example, for 30 days you, you will list you know, a positive influence that you've listened to. You'll list a, a positive uh, message that you've given some, to somebody else. You'll look at your strengths and identify how you used to strength that day. And then when we focus on sleeping well, you just do a couple of easy tips like phone off an hour before bed, uh, dark room, no caffeine after 1pm, and then so on and so forth in physical activity and eating healthily. And the idea is that over 30 days, by journaling it in the book, by completing these actions each day, you should hopefully create some uh, robust habits in the areas of uh, mindset, sleeping well, eating well, being physically active, and they'll keep with you going forward. So, the idea behind the program is it educates people, it shows them that well-being is accessible for everybody, but then also it creates permanent change, and I think that's the key with the program. Great, that's fantastic. And you know, in my experience, if if there are educators out there uh, just wondering what age groups is appropriate for, I would suggest anything between year five and year eight. Um, but I, I've actually known schools where staff have actually taken a copy of the yeah. book and used and used it to work through their own well-being in terms of looking at those four pillars. Yeah, that's it. I mean, it is designed for all ages. I'm the same as you. Year five is the starting point with it, but it can go all, all, all the way through to like an eight-year-old. I've had so many adults and mid-teenagers, and also you know, uh, further education students go on the program and go. Do you know what? It's had great results for me. It's a great impact. I'd love to like. It's really pleasing to see when you kind of design a program and you think oh, this works should work. It's simplistic. It should create habits and, and create some friction to, for these habits to stick. But then when you get you know messages back through social media uh, and so on about how oh, it's made a difference and helped them change your lives, it's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And then that's the sort of feedback I've I've had as well. And um, <clears throat> just a, a sort of. A sneak trailer. Uh, Jamie and I met uh, probably about a month ago now, and uh, had a conversation about building onto this program. So hopefully, by the time we get to September, um, and I'm going to try and use the sort of August quieter time when when schools are are, are on break, to to try and build some uh, extra resource into be a champion with some of the stuff that I know works around uh, you know the five ways to well-being. So. You know, keep your eyes peeled for that, everybody, because that um, that that's likely to be on the horizon in the not too distant future. Um, and I know time is tight, Jamie, and you 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 have to dash shortly. But I'm just going to finish up with two questions, and the questions that I always ask everybody on the podcast. Um, the first one is, um, what do you do to support your own well-being? So, what's your go-to in terms of improving your own well-being? So, yeah, great question with this. So, I think. First of all, I think with your well-being, you, uh, it's important to be selfish at times with your well-being, but you, you're not being selfish by, I mean, by creating some non-negotiable time for your own well-being because everybody else benefits off, off the back of that because you're a far better person because of it. So my kind of fundamentals are uh, I, I, I do uh, make sure I get the right amount of sleep. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty 
Uh, I'm non-negotiable with that. I like to go out of bed at a certain time, wake up at a certain time. Uh, I've got a really dark room, really cool room. Uh, no TV or, or in my uh, bedroom. Phone off at an hour before bed. Uh, and then in the morning, I always like to have a couple of pints of water, get outside, you know, five, ten minutes, get a bit of blue light into me. And then I, I have to exercise every day as well uh, with that. And, and they're kind of my like almost like non-negotiables around making sure I get the right amount of sleep, electronics off before bed, um, plenty of water in the morning, and then exercise uh, as well with that. And then I think the probably next one is uh, I've really got an aversion for kind of ultra-processed food. You know, I really try to stay away from that now and make sure, you know, I cook most meals or and I have a variety of meals as well with that. And I think all those things lead to me uh, feeling well and like I said for me it's like no midweek drinking I, I don't I think it's really important not to do that yeah yeah absolutely <clears throat> and, and being the best version of yourself as you say you know is, is it makes you a better person for your family but also you know in terms of, I think sometimes people think taking time for well-being it means you don't get your marking done or you can't get any planning done or whatever but actually I think you become far more effective in your work job as well. So you offer a better quality of education to students because you've invested in yourself. So it's not it's not selfish, is it? No, it's not selfish at all. And you, you're dead right there. I mean, by look, prioritizing yourself and, uh, and investing in yourself, everybody else benefits off the back of it when you invest in your well-being. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, final question. Um, and, and we've had some interesting answers to this. Um, but if you were to um, lie down in that dark, cool room that you described uh, and listen to a piece of music that would help you to chill out and relax, what what would that one piece of music be? Oh, that's a good question. Um, what music? See, I always like uh, I like America rock music. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. We've had, we've had um, we've had God Save the Queen by the Sex Pistols. That was yeah, John Brady's. <laughs> So mine would be uh, at Thunder Road, sung live in California in 1975 by Bruce Springsteen uh, and the E Street Band. I just love that song. Every time I listen to it, it just it gets me in a, a great frame of mind. I just think it's an, an incredible song, and I can't believe it's now nearly, what, 50 years old. It's just unbelievable. Yeah. Goodness me. Jamie, it's been an absolute pleasure, as it always is, uh, catching up with you. Thank you for your time this morning. It, it really is appreciated. And I hope everybody who's listening to this, and we, we are getting an increasing audience. We had 250 downloads for the uh, previous podcast. So maybe you know we can beat that and, and push it beyond that. Thank you ever so much for your time and, and sharing your insights into well-being with us from a, you know, a professional sporting standpoint, but, but now very much working with us in terms of trying to improve mental health and well-being of, of those people working in schools. Yeah, thank you. And uh, it's, it's always a pleasure chatting to you. Some great questions there. and It's been brilliant to be on here uh, uh, as well. So let's see, if we, see, see how many downloads there is, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, Jamie. Take care. Yeah, you too, Andy. Take care.